Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 49 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. The podcast in which your host, that's me, that is, Daryl Edge, is on the journey to true Cage Nirvana, the highest form of being to get as close to the golden hog of Hollywood himself I can by watching all of his wonderful, wonderful films. Because he's never made a bad one, obviously. Uh, how are you? How are you been? I hope you've had a good week. The sun is still shining uh, a little too brightly for some people. In fact, this week, my neighbour's garden <laughs> exploded. My neighbour's garden exploded. I was literally working from home, heard a gigantic bang that rocked the house and sort of neighbouring houses, um, and then went outside thinking someone was trying to break in. Their garden was on fire. It looks like a, um, a a propane tank or a gas tank or something for a barbecue went up. Uh, fortunately, no one was hurt. Everyone's okay. The neighbor obviously a bit shook up, but um, managed to have a, a quick chat to check he was all right. But fire was put out. The neighbor's okay. The back door exploded, though. The windows exploded. The guttering. The fire was so hot, the guttering is just hanging off as we speak. So... Uh, very, a very surprising turn of events this past weekend where, you know, just a normal day and then suddenly flames, um, which is basically a culmination of things after the, the, the absolute wonderful mess that was the Ghost Rider episode last week. Uh, but we turn our attention this week to the 2007 film, the sci-fi action thriller Next Mike Reed, uh, the wonderful Welsh Mike Reed, as if I had to put out there that he was Welsh, like that's a, a thing that has to be addressed. Um, old friend of mine from university days, uh, very kindly agreed to jump on and do the episode next with me. We have a really great chat in this one where we talk about so so many things. Um, Nicholas Cage, his hair in this one, um, it's up there with the worst Cage hair in Cage's cinematic history, uh, we end up talking about Jason Statham, the Chuckle Brothers, theme parks, and Mike Reed pitches his um, ideal podcast situations as well. Uh, really great episode. Again, a lot of fun uh, working on these, and this episode especially. And just before we get into it, we'll get the admin out of the way, of course. If you want to uh, come check me out on Twitter, come follow me at cage underscore podcast we're now over 700 followers isn't that wonderful the twitter journey to true cage nirvana to the big 1000 the big 1k rolls on it carries on uh that's the big goal for the twitter to get to over a thousand that'd be amazing follow me on twitter at cage rage pod and you can find me on all the usual streaming services spotify Podchaser, Apple, Deezer, Google, Amazon, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, tuned in. If you're listening on any of the platforms which allow you to leave a rating of any kind, like Apple, like Podchaser, please feel free to follow the podcast, leave it a rating as well, and it helps us, you know, boost us in the old 
whole algorithms there helps put a lot more eyes on the podcast completely free to do so only takes a minute or so of your time doesn't cost you a penny to do so um, and it'd be really really appreciated as well if you could and to wrap things up a very quick shout out to petros from caged in podcast he's now working on coppola connections uh just today received at the time of recording an outstanding uh caged in limited edition t-shirt uh, at the time of recording i think he's got one left in a large uh check out the twitter and the facebook feeds and see a picture of me rocking this absolute bad boy if you think it looks as awesome as i have found it uh hit him up if there's interest he'll do a second run on these as well um so go and check all that out but with that all said and done let's get into episode 49 it's 2007's next daryl edge mike reed duh 2007 rolls on with the sci-fi action thriller Next. Here, Cage plays Chris Johnson, small-time Vegas magician with the ability to see two minutes into the future. When a terrorist threatens to detonate a nuclear weapon in LA, the FBI hunt for Chris in the hopes his precognition can help them prevent disaster. Now joining me this week on the journey to true Cage Nirvana to see if next future is looking good or if the outlook is so-so is stand-up comedian and actor and personal friend Mike Reed. Uh, Mike, how are you doing? I'm very well on this uh, Saturday. Uh, It's great to come on. It's great to chat about Nicolas Cage. there's just so much we could talk about. Obviously, we're going to try and keep it to the film next and his role in it. But, I mean, this I feel like Nicolas Cage is one of those actors where just he'll go, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, and here we are. <laughs> I mean, that you, know, you, just like Nicolas Cage, have been presented an opportunity and said yes without any thought into it whatsoever. And now here we are on a Zoom call in what, for me, is a very rainy Saturday in the North. Um, I don't know about you over in uh still in Merthyr Tidville, is it in Wales, if yeah. I remember correctly? Yeah. Uh yeah. Um it's been raining. Uh it's probably gonna rain again. Um but I just it doesn't matter what the weather is. I mean, we can't go far. <laughs> Not um, at the moment. So it is I'd probably say it's drizzling, but that's about it. That's about it. Well, hopefully not drizzling on the old conversation. Today, uh, obviously, we're here for, uh, as I refer to him, the greatest actor of our generation, this generation, the previous generation, any generation, Nicolas Cage. So as we kick off the episodes, um, always interested to know um, with my guests, you know, your thoughts on the man. Where do you stand on him? Do you think he's all that? Do you think he's a bit of a ham? What's Mike Reed's thoughts on uh, Nicolas Cage? Uh, I... I like Nicolas Cage uh, in the films that he's he's done really well in. There's some films that I've gone like, oh yeah, th- this is this is brilliant. Uh, and there's other films where I've just gone, oh, you've released a film in July and then September and then November, but they're not as good as like a one film you did like in the 80s or the 90s. I feel like, okay, I don't know how many kids he has. I don't know if he's got any kids, but I feel like. Uh, he's putting his kids in too many trainers, probably accepting too many paychecks. Um, <laughs> but I, I do, I do, I do like him in certain things. Um, I do respect man for just being busy taking work. Maybe if we could refer it to up and coming WWE talent, 
he showcases yeah. some stars uh, which want to obviously bite their teeth on Hollywood. Um, and I've always said this to about Jason Statham. Um, like, say you lived in, I don't know, uh, Perth, and then a director comes and says, well, you don't have to leave your radius of 40 miles to shoot this film. We'll give you $500,000. Would you take it? You know what I mean? If, if you don't have to travel, but the film isn't going to be that good, would you still take it? Well, that's a big question to start off. Um, Mike Reid with the big questions about my moral character. Um, ooh, I'm, I mean, yes, <laughs> I think I think I'd end up taking it. Um, if they're saying like, "Look, it's a bad film, but you're going to get paid handsomely for it," when am I going to say five hundred thousand? I'm assuming Australian dollars here. I don't know what the conversion rate is, but. Um, I mean, I'm not getting paid for this podcast, so I'll take what I I'll t- I'll take what I can get. But it, uh, you know, for for the sake of Statham, uh, I love um, the Transporter, and I thought it was good, a good trilogy. But then he did Crank Two, which I mean, <laughs> it just I can't tell you how bad that that bit is. I mean, there's a bit on on the horse track where he makes love to a woman. Um, then in the end, he becomes this giant, like King Kong versus Godzilla-esque thing through like buildings, and it's just a mess. But the first one, I loved. <laughs> it's, it sounds like you've had a bad dream. Um, although, if, if if that's maybe the upcoming Mike Reed project for the sake of Statham, when you're going to go through Statham's uh, back catalogue, yeah, if that's no, an undertaking. We're not here for Statham, but that's what I'm... Like, <laughs> my, my point is, is if he didn't have to move out of his city or place and they've gone, well, we're making a sequel, you're going to end up with 1.6 million, but it's not going to do that well, would you still work? That was the, the thought behind it. I, I, I mean, again, I guess it depends on what part of the life that you're at. I mean, for me, I think I'd... I'm, I'm a sucker, I'm a scumbag, I'm a bottom of the barrel bottom feeder so i'd be all over that um like a like a hound on a scrap of meat that's been left outside of the butchers um <laughs> you know like a uh, classic butcher going harumph as the dog steals that sausage that chain of sausages um although it's 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 an interesting point that you bring up though with the perception that he takes sort of any films um it, it's the point i bring up all the time on the podcast, that which is it's kind of well known, he's had the um, he's had money issues, you know. Um, need I say again uh, the whole dinosaur bone fiasco, where yeah. you, you can't just go around buying um, prehistoric bones when you've not done the proper background checks um, when they don't belong to you, um, and then when the museum you've illegally got them from wants them back, and when you've got a an accounts manager. Who is not managing your accounts? That's why you end up in films um, like USS uh, Men of um, USS Indianapolis, Men of Courage. Uh, you get stuff like Dying of the Light, Left Behind. <laughs> Basically, um, I mean, just scanning through his 2010s, 85% of the work he did in the 2010s, with a few notable exceptions, were largely the byproduct of, um, you know what was once a man on the on the tippity top of the of the, the mountain now um you know walking amongst us humans amongst us ants who once looked up to him um so if i you know if i can give you any advice it's uh 
Uh, don't buy bones, Mike Reed. No, 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 certainly not. Um, but I suppose like, listening of what you've asked people, uh, I, like my first interaction with Cage um, was probably my my grandfather or uncle had face off on VHS, Ooh, and the, the, the artwork <laughs> for a eight year old Mike Reed looking at it was like wow. <laughs> it, it, it was it was one of those films where you didn't know what to buy into. Like your imagination is two upside down faces on a video cover. Uh, I think it was eighteen, so I knew I wasn't going to be able to watch it. Um, next week was probably like Freddy Star VHS as well, which was also eighteen. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what a comparison to bring on to the uh, on the podcast: Nick Cage and Freddy Star in the same sentence. Um, but. Uh, I didn't watch it probably till I was um, 16. Um, Conair, again, uh, was a popular one, I remember. Um, and another one, which film, which, as you know, uh, especially in my teens, a big fan of WWE, uh, the film with, uh, was called The Rock. And I superly oh, yes. thought that Dwayne Johnson was in it. And they named a film after him called The Rock, but it turns out it's obviously three big Hollywood stars. And Dwayne Johnson was probably wrestling Rikishi in a boiler room match somewhere on heat. <laughs> it, just throwing those uh, WWE SmackDown game, uh, just create a stipulation together. I mean, The Rock was 96, so... I think the actual Rock may have only just debuted at that point. Um or Rocky Rocky Mavia, uh, Rocky Mavia, as he would have been known at the time when he was all fresh faced and pre Nation of Domination. But I suppose with The Rock, though, um, obviously spoilers: The Rock is just Alcatraz. If you just called it Alcatraz Island, that does sound like the kind of thing you'd get in um, like the the bargain bin of a blockbuster when that was uh, when that was with us, or now CEX, um, <laughs> as it's as it as it's evolved to. Um, but but you are right though. Obviously, the I, th- I don't know if it was just a thing with the nineties. The posters for those films are obviously so attention grabbing. Obviously, um, Con Air like the black and the orange and the the walking on the desert face off. Obviously, half Nicolas Cage, half John Travolta. Um, I mean, which I just pirated to use for the logo as this half my face, half Cage's. Which nowadays, obviously, with the um, the joy of Photoshop and as we were sort of touching upon pre-record. Um, it's a poster that's obviously so one of the famous movie posters, if you ask me. But anyone could do it on Photoshop now. I did it, and when I say me, I mean my partner, who's much better at Photoshop than me. And the um, but you've seen the usual uh thumbnails for episodes that I put out. I just uh cut out my head from a picture, whack it on Nicolas Cage's body, change the color, and call it a day. And that's <laughs> Hollywood. I'm waiting for your call. Um, and then. Just so sort of like you go through, I would say when I was 16, maybe 15, I started really enjoying films. I think before, like for me, before I was 15, um, I had DVDs, but now when I watch films, I look like more of the themes, the color, the camera angles, I, you know, as more of a film fan. Whereas back then it was like, oh, I've seen Friday the 13th and Pirates of the Caribbean, I may as well buy the DVD. Whereas now it's, just looking at like more of the the art, um, just looking at you know reading the the response to it. Um, but 
and then Nicolas Cage dropped two films, which, if if you ask me, uh, are either um, iconic for different reasons, but mm-hmm. two. Mm-hmm. 2005, 2006, I think The Wicker Man was dropped. Yes, uh, towards the end of 2006, The Wicker Man. Um, which, again, um, we won't go into the history, but we'll just see um, Alton Towers now got a ride called The Wicker Man. Um, I think. Does it? I think some big theme park has, uh, but sadly it's nothing to do with Nicolas Cage. It would be good if there was a 25-foot Nicolas Cage and you, there was oh. an inversion loop. Um <laughs> we if, can always dream if there were, if there was a theme ride based on the 2006 film The Wicker Man I would not come off that ride to be fair obviously you know the film itself is a ride and actually you know you are right it's a it's a wooden roller coaster in Alton Towers I'm not gonna, I'm not going to come on you and just lie to you Oh <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you oh yeah never no just looking now it's Opened in 2018. So that, that ride is nearly three years old. Cost 16 million. Um, 70 k- kilometers an hour. Bigger, big speeds on that. Oh, now I need to know. It re- Get this as well. The Wicker Man roller coaster replaced the flume at Alton uh, Towers. Big, um, what a controversial ride to replace. And we should let that. We should let your listeners know that the flume is not a Nicolas Cage film. They didn't go right. We need a sequel here. <laughs> Uh, we get the Wicker Man in. Um, but the film, which um, especially working in recently in, in education that we, we've we played probably every sort of September is uh, the World Trade Center film with Nicolas Cage. Oh, yes. Um, which, again, me and you know we're probably where we were in 2001 on that day. Um, I probably rushed home from school, realised the Chittle Brothers weren't on, they were cancelled, the news were on. Uh, <laughs> Only a tragedy could cancel the Chuckle Brothers. Um, but, you know, as a nine-year-old, you don't understand much. You only, you're only interested in Chittle Vision or Smart or Tracy Beaker Returns, and oh, yeah, they, yeah. they're not on. So we have the World Trade Center, which we've played uh, in, in school and I've seen it. Um, and I'll definitely, definitely... Uh, be listening to whoever your your guest is on that because that is a sensitive topic, a sensitive film. Um, I even bought the DVD uh, last September because uh, we were, I think we were just, we were in that process of lockdown where you could like go out on a Wednesday and a Sunday morning. Um, and we, we just, I, I just thought, oh, it was not, I expected it to be on TV, but it wasn't. Netflix didn't have it. Um, so I bought the DVD and watched it again. And uh, I salute Nicholas Cage for taking on that role. Uh, it's such a sad film because um, it's, you know, uh, history and I was alive, you were alive, and we know we're in well. Um, and then two years ago, I actually went to Ground Zero and it, it, it is, um, it's quite raw uh, with with me um, and probably one of the saddest places I, I've been. Um, but the film, I, I think everybody should watch the film for what it is. Um, not spoiling it too much, but and I think Nicholas Cage plays the fireman and the policeman. Is that right? Um, he plays a policeman, um, John something. It, obviously, it's based on someone who actually survived in the uh, the World Trade Center when it fell. Uh, John McLaughlin, I think his name is. Um, 
and then they have like three different stories in that uh like Stephen Dorf is like a, a rescue guy and then they've got um uh Michael Shannon who's just this like lone army ranger who just appears and then he weirdly he goes to um uh, obviously where the incidents happened but stops to get a haircut on the way before he rescues anyone um but although that being said obviously for, for the listeners i record a bunch of these episodes out of order so this episode um or should i say world trade center episode will be up um obviously by this time so you will know that um the guest i had on that was a uh, petros patsilovas who uh, does the caged in podcast um and just like the intro and outro theme that i use he made that for me um so he very kindly uh, was speaking to me about that about that one i was kind of expecting to say when you visited the um obviously ground zero that like the, the chucker brothers were going to be there um just doing a little two-man act saying like trying to get back the time that was taken from them in 2001 um yeah but uh classic classic chuckle bros well again i haven't uh spoken to you properly uh yeah vocally since obviously one of the Chuckle brothers have deceased which could, <laughs> I, I could do my own podcast on the Chuckle brothers um but they are 292 episodes so i need 292 guests <laughs> uh i don't think anyone will blame you for getting some repeat guests in there i'm trying to i think i know like uh I'm not, uh, the previous guest of the podcast danny hyde who spoke to me about eight millimeter he got um he's got his own youtube channel he got paul chuckle to do a cameo video for him yeah yeah, um, yeah. yeah. which so he probably paid paul chuckle about a hundred pounds just for 10 seconds of paul chuckle just to do all his shit you know to me to you paul chuckle and at the end the last second he goes watch danny hyde and then like <laughs> yeah it's like you've you've probably paid hundreds of pounds for that um that's that's the risk of cameo though you don't always know what you're gonna get um yeah. so speaking of like wrestling the undertaker did a few cameos not too long ago i think it was like 300 dollars a cameo but it was just him just going like my favorite show is scooby-doo and then <laughs> <laughs> it's like 300 dollars for that call cool. why not um but yeah um uh just going back quickly to um the, w- the wicker man i remember uh, where I was probably when I first saw the, the DVD cover when I rented it from uh, a shop which it was first called Choices and then Blockbuster took over in uh, the town where I where I am and I remember renting it. And looking back now, how much were we ripped off years ago? Like Netflix, $5.99, knock yourself out. Blockbuster, mm-hmm. $3.95 for three days. <laughs> Blockbuster were running a hell of a scheme back in the 90s. Um, I th- there was there was a blockbuster by me, and I think I the last time I went would have been I don't know two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, when it was like the last dregs of blockbuster when Netflix was just starting to come up. Um, and I think I bought on DVD the film Bunny and the Bull. Um, but <laughs> but it's like obviously you're not. It's like back then it was the case you're not buying like the actual DVD you're buying the blockbuster version with the unskippable adverts right at the start. I was livid because I I didn't know the situation. I'm still angry about it now. Um, I think I've seen somewhere in America though. There's a blockbuster which is now. Um, well, it might be in the UK actually. There's a blockbuster that's an Airbnb, so you can for a laugh just have a night in a blockbuster, which 
I don't know. I mean, you know, it's an option. I'd rather yeah. have a night in an IKEA. But um, <laughs> if you're going to ask me to choose a store to sleep in, um, yeah. <laughs> where, where where would you rather sleep, IKEA or Blockbuster? Um, probably IKEA. I mean, I mean, normally Blockbuster would only have one TV, whereas IKEA would probably have a lot of more things to do. I mean, they've got a cafe. I mean, Blockbuster probably had popcorn there, probably had some Pepsi in a fridge. But, I mean, Ikea is, like, massive. You could play hide-and-seek. <laughs> you would you'd be less bored in Ikea. You get all the, the little Swedish, you know, when they have the tiny little Swedish superstore right at the end, I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, like the Swedish chocolates and the ice creams and the, the sausages, you get, like, a donut and an ice cream for, like, a pound each. I suppose, obviously, um, for further context, the listeners like myself and Mike went to uni together, same course, same year. I remember there were, there were definitely times in our first year where we would be waiting for like a morning lesson to count down, and it would be me and a few others that would like race to IKEA to get there in time for the breakfast. We'd have about like 15 minutes to get out of our uni building, race across into the... Um, uh, like the retail park, and then you have to navigate through IKEA. And to do that all that in fifteen minutes shows that you know what what strapping young bucks <laughs> we were once upon a time. Don't think I can I, do it now. I've got a say a confession. It's just um, during our second year, maybe uh, we'd finished a couple of classes, and I don't know. We came out together, a group of us, but I I ended up saying I was going somewhere. I had to do something. Maybe I had to go put money in the bank to pay rent. And I, I thought I'd walk the long way around Southampton, so escalated around the front where the big posh hotel was, and it started to pick the rain really bad to it picked up. And my house was probably another mile, maybe 1.5 mile. So I decided to just go to Ikea just to write some references for uh, an essay while <laughs> drinking free coffee for two hours. Um, and I felt really guilty, so then I decided to take some photos of wardrobes so the staff knew that I was there for a purpose. <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever known IKEA to have any kind of in-store security. Like, well, he's not looking at our Bjorgenflongs, so he, he must be here for some nefarious means. And I just imagine like some poor, um, some poor employee of IKEA is just coming over to you in the cafe, saying, like, "Excuse me, like you've not even looked at our." Um, our selection of mirrors and Swedish pillows. You're clearly doing work here. What is your problem? Um, I don't know how we've just gone on to IKEA in depth, but um, <laughs> before I moved in with um, my girlfriend, um, we went to IKEA to sort some uh, sort some tables and some chairs, and especially the one in Cardiff. It's got like a, an a la carte cafe. You got your normal cafe where it's you know plastic red card, you know black coffee nine pence. Um, <laughs> then there was like a, a a proper you know double espresso type cafe, uh, pastries, and like whether it's just being working class going. I'm not paying one pound twenty for a black coffee in IKEA. Like mm -hmm. I pay that for Greg, but I wouldn't pay it for a place that sells wood. And you know. <laughs> That's that's the line for you. Whether you buy a coffee is whether or not they sell wood. Um, we found the line, everyone, for Mike Reed. Uh, yeah. So I think going off IKEA and going straight in to this uh, film. Um, have you got anything you want to start um, before we talk, sort of talk in depth about next? 
Um, well, next for me, um, with a lot of films, like I say before on the podcast, a lot of these Nicolas Cage films, until I started doing this podcast, um, sort of hadn't actually seen before. Next was one of the ones that I knew about. It's one of those that didn't quite slip into obscurity like a lot of his sort of later 2010 stuff would. But um, I knew of the film when it came out, but I hadn't seen it. So I think... I feel like I've seen it before, maybe um, maybe many, many years ago, but sort of pre-university for me. But um, effectively, this was like watching it again for the first time, just to go in it with fresh. Um, and I suppose that being said, um, at the time of recording, Next is available on Netflix in the UK. Um, what I enjoyed, though, about Next when it came out is, um, and again, at the time of recording, we're recording at the start of February 2021 here. Um, when you go into Netflix, obviously you get that list of um, sort of top in the UK today. And this was about two days ago. Um, it's like number two was Bridgerton, which has obviously taken the world by storm. Everyone's watched Bridgerton. It's like millions and millions and millions of people have watched Bridgerton. At number one, the 2007 Nicolas Cage sci-fi action thriller, Next. Yes. Um, <laughs> and that brought me no end of joy because um, my my partner pointed it out to me and she's binged Bridgerton big fan of Bridgerton I think she's reading the, the Bridgerton books now and I was like yes this is justice for the golden hog of Hollywood this is what the people want the UK have finally made a smart decision and this is what they voted for this is what they want it's next and then um I saw like a tweet earlier saying, um, you know, Hollywood tends to recycle like the same five ideas in some format. But when you read the description of Next, um, a Las Vegas magician who can see into the future, pursued by FBI agents seeking to use his abilities to prevent a nuclear terrorist attack. You tell me you've never seen that idea before. That's idea number six. Um, Which is kind of, you know, and obviously we'll get into the film a little bit more, but... It's interesting because Nicolas Cage did an interview about the film and someone asked him, you know, oh, well, why should people come and see next? And he said, um, sort of paraphrasing, like, it's different. It's original. You don't see many characters like Chris. So as far as, far as he was concerned, you know, this was this in 2007 or 2006 when it was filmed was the most original idea. You've never seen anything like it in your life. Um and I suppose that leads me to passing the question on to you um, on the back of that. Like, had you seen Next before? Uh, and like Nicolas Cage, is this the most original idea you've ever seen? Um, yes. This when, you, when we were discussing what film to talk about and discuss, I was hoping this was in the list. Like, Ooh. I was... If you'd say, name Nicolas Cage's, like, best top ten films, because I've seen it, I think this is automatically in his top ten. Um, mm-hmm. which I remember where I was when I first saw this. Um, I remember somebody pirating this from LimeWire, <laughs> no doubt two years ago. Um, <laughs> Napster, and, LimeWire, all the greats. And at the same time, I think, maybe in a week before, a week after, we watched The Condemned, which, as you know, had Vinnie Jones and Steve Austin in. So yes, I remember They the might Condemned. have come out at the same time, but for me... I watched this back yesterday afternoon after work. And obviously the first time around off LimeWire, it was probably shot in a cinema in Japan or somewhere around the world. Uh, I definitely had, I remember Japanese subtitles. 
Um, and it was, the quality wasn't that good. But then I watched it again, maybe one or two years later. And I enjoyed, I enjoy anything which has got something about a magician in, in a film. Uh, there's something about the, uh, where it's because I've got a like for magic, where I feel like my brain starts opening up and going, oh, this, this, this. But I definitely had seen it twice before. Knowing it was going to be dropped on Netflix in February, um, I, w- I have to watch it again. But yeah, uh, I feel like it, it's, a, it's a, a decent watch. Um, it does go off tangible a lot. You don't, you know, he, when you realize he's a magician within 20 minutes, that's wrapped up. You don't, he doesn't refer <laughs> and pull out a rabbit, you know, after an hour and go, I've still got it, honey. Doesn't do that. <laughs> I mean, I, and I was going to say, I, I, remember you having like a like for magic uh, and i can't remember if from our former stand-up days if you, you used to do a magic trick in in your act i remember you holding up a big mug tapping yourself with it and saying i've been mugged one yes. of the classic read uh read bits of all time um but it, it like you say though it's this film for me um and again obviously we'll, we'll sort of break it down a bit more as we go on it's it starts quite interestingly. It starts quite hot. Like it's a good premise. Um, you know, obviously this this magician, he's trying to go under the radar. He just wants to live like a simple life. But the FBI say, you know, we can use this man's abilities to um stop this terrorist attack. Um and then as the film progresses, it just kind of keeps forgetting what it's about and just continues to go <laughs> off the rails. I mean, um, you know, Rotten Tomatoes gave this uh, 28%, I believe it was. Um, the general consensus was numerous plot holes and poorly motivated characters prevent Next from being the thought-provoking sci-fi flick it could have been. I mean, I think 28% may be uh, a little harsh. I don't think you should have got any more than 40%, but it's, it's just... I think like we were saying is like with Netflix and Blockbuster, it's just one of those films you can just put on and you can just watch it and it's a film that happens and it's fine. Um I think I was a little bit and again I'm jumping ahead, um, a bit annoyed by the ending. Um I don't know about your thoughts on that, but um if we sort of stick to the start now and try and keep a semblance of sense, unlike this film um again i thought the ending was uh, the start rather was was pretty good when he's um you know he stopped that gunman who's going to rob the sort of the teller the the little checkout bit whatever you want to call it in the casino um and then when he's doing all that um because he knows when the security is coming after him he knows when to duck he knows when to turn around and hide on the other side of the machine um and you get that car chase as well with like the first ten minutes, like what did you think of like the opening? Because again, I thought it was really good. Yeah, the the opening the opening first scene where he's on stage in that Las Vegas theater and he hasn't got a massive crowd. Um, but you obviously to be in a Las Vegas theater, you must be a good magician. So my thought is, well, he's obviously been there a while. As he narrates, he said it's a Wednesday night. He has to gamble, uh, so it's a midweek show. And obviously in the audience, we see Julianne Moore, which I want to talk about in a bit as well. Um, yeah, and then uh, when he sort of narrates that and he's sort of leaving the stage, um, what we should mention, I don't know if you've, you've, you've noticed this, but his assistant, I believe, was his ex-wife in real life. 
Yes. Um, I think it's about four or five minutes in. Um, obviously, at, at the start of the film, um, you know, where you get that the voiceover with Nick Cage, and he's like, uh, this is my life. This is the ability I have. Um, and he says, I can only see into my future. I can only see two minutes into my future. Although we get that thread that goes through, um, because the only exception to the rule is that he is seen an indeterminate time amount in the future when he's waiting for a woman at a diner at nine minutes past eight. So it's like, oh, well, what's going on there? Um, but then, like I said, like he's, he's obviously he's a decent um, magician. I mean, his magician outfit, uh, I think my notes were like, it was a cross between the musician Nick Cave and a depressed Doctor Who. Um, just <laughs> quite sad to see that outfit. But then he's got the stage name as well, Frank Cadillac, which he said was a um, a mix between Frankenstein and Cadillacs, um, two things that he enjoys, which I suspect sort of know Nicolas Cage. And a lot of the time he does sprinkle things into films of his own life that he enjoys. He tends to get like a lot of leeway in films to do things creatively. So when he said that later on, I was like, well, there's there's no way that he didn't um, add that himself. But you are right. The um, uh, I think she's just credited as a um, woman in pearl necklace. Was his um, ex-wife Alex uh, Alice Kim, formerly known as Alice Kim Cage, married in two thousand and four, divorced twenty sixteen, um, and when they were together, they had Nicholas Cage's, I believe, his second child, Kalal Cage, um, who I've brought up on the podcast before. But I went to, as we said, Cage's like of things. Big comic fan, big fan of Superman. Obviously, his real Kryptonian name, Kal-El, so he named his son after Superman. Um, so, would you, you know, if if you had a firstborn, would you name them after Superman, Kal-El Reed, perhaps? Probably not. Um, <laughs> um, what, what, what you just mentioned, though, I was just going to say, um, I was going to test your knowledge, and if you remembered... Nicholas Cage's uh, stage name. We know his name's Chris, but his stage name in the film is Frank Cadillac. And I feel that after this, we should petition this to be a question in the chase. Um, like, <laughs> um, like, it's so... Because as soon as th- that was revealed, I was like, right, uh, what, what, am I, what, what car am I obsessed with? And it was a smart car. And then what, like, big monster, you know... King Kong Smart would be like mine, but you know, <laughs> King Kong Smart Car. I mean, isn't that, yeah? Isn't the King Kong of Smart Cars that's just a mini, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you're you're right. Um, <laughs> um, so we come off this uh, shot of him uh, playing to a small audience on a Wednesday night, which it is, and then. One of the, I will say this, one of the best scenes I have ever seen in a film is a shot. Uh, he walks through the strip of Las Vegas holding a cocktail. He looks broken before he opens the door into another casino to gamble. That sort of 30 seconds, I think, is just wonderful. There's so much going on in the background. There's the pretty lights, there's people this busy. Um, he narrates that he's down, he doesn't earn much money, and you do you do feel from then what type of... I mean, you're written in the big time Las Vegas and then you're going to gamble on a Wednesday night. I, do, do you, you feel sorry for him a bit. You feel like, where's this going? He needs some luck. And then 
obviously chaos erupts uh, near the table when somebody probably spilled a pina colada over his nine of clubs. <laughs> um, well, he, he's he's been in a few Las Vegas centric films before. Obviously, 1995's Leaving Las Vegas, where he won the award for best actor. Um, Honeymoon in Vegas. Uh, Connor ends up in Vegas. Now in next, we're back in Vegas. Um, obviously, a fan of a martini in this one. Um, obviously, he's seen that vision, so he knows he has to be in those particular clothes. He has to be drinking a martini at nine minutes past eight. Um, although I think it's, you know, we're probably around 30 or so minutes into this episode, 30, 35 minutes. And I think um, if we're going to do any justice to it, we have to mention the hair. Um, I think it goes without saying that there's been a few films, especially around this point in his career, where his hair just became absolutely outlandish. Um, It just became ridiculous. Uh, And again, knowing Cage, I have no um, hesitation to sort of mention that this was very likely a choice that he made um, and sort of signed off on. I mean, after this... The hair in Bangkok Dangerous is up there as some of the worst. It's almost the same, which makes me wonder if he filmed Next and Bangkok Dangerous around the same time. Um, but here, it it does look like there is a dead bird on his head. It's it's top, I would say, top three worst Nicolas Cage haircuts that he's ever had. It's It's very... And this is kind of the issue I have, because obviously... Um, I'm I'm very happy to announce my bias, and I think Nicolas Cage is great. But it's something that's been brought up on the podcast. Obviously, when Nick Cage is in these roles, and when he's not just the lead, but he's also like a romantic lead as well. Um, obviously, he has the relationship with the mystery woman, who we find out is Liz later on. Um, you just kind of think that it's it's difficult to be believable. Like one that it's Nicolas Cage. And two, Nicolas Cage with that haircut we're supposed to believe is <laughs> <laughs> the, the romantic lead and this uh, and this lady who has no idea but he's been predetermined to meet with her and in the space of 24 hours they've fallen in love and he has that hair at the same time. Um, I mean, I've got to ask Mike Reed, when you saw that hair, did you, did you think, come on? Uh, I thought everybody turned up to work uh, beside hair and beauty that day they rang in sick 10 past nine and going look um i'm not going to be in the, the traffic's mental back here in vegas um N- nicholas can you do anything and he's had a bit of brill cream and go i've got this <laughs> and I, I think, um probably one of his demands now where he, in whatever film he's in even if he got to play somebody like bronson he going i'm keeping this hair <laughs> I think if there's anything that's good that's come out of the last few years, maybe with one or two exceptions, for the most part, his hair has been uh, pretty consistent, pretty under control in the last few years. Um, but like I say, towards towards the end of the 2010s, or, or the 2000s, I should say, um, he his hair lost its shit. I mean, uh, before this... Um, we might be after this actually. I mean, Bangkok Dangerous and then Drive Angry are probably the most notable for bad cage hair. Um, obviously, Drive Angry when it's like long and blonde um, for no reason at all. 
Um, again, Bangkok Dangerous, pretty much the same hairstyle. Um, it just, you know, again, like I, I want to enjoy Nicolas Cage films, but there's nothing like Nicolas Cage brill creaming his own hair that kind of takes you out of the moment, out of the experience. Um, but it's, I mean, you know, thankfully you can kind of move past it. Um, obviously, he, you know, as we said, he, he, the FBI are after him. It's FBI agent uh, Callie Ferris, played by uh, Julianne Moore. Um, and we sort of know from what they say towards the start that they're aware of his ability. They've been sort of um, uh, staking him out and keeping an eye on him for some time. They want to use his precognition to stop a terrorist plot. Um, and I know that you said earlier you had, uh, you had some thoughts on Julianne Moore as well. Yeah, um, Julianne Moore is probably, well, she's in my top favourite favorite female actors um, around. Um, I always feel like, beside, like, uh, especially in the last 10 years, the films I've seen her in have been very good or, or worthy of an award. Um, still, Alice, she's known uh, remarkably well in. Um, and she was in, I want to say, Kingsman 2. Possibly just bringing up her uh, filmography here, and you know, quite a quite a hefty um, wiki page, if I do say so myself. I think just she's around through. 60, 61? I think so. It's definitely marvelous for her age, if I do say so uh, myself. Uh, sixty will turn sixty-one December of twenty twenty-one. I'm not looking a day over thirty-five, if I do say so myself, Miss Moore. Um, but a few notable roles: The Big Lebowski, Children of Men, Still Alice, as you said, um, and uh, The Lost World, Jurassic Park, Hannibal, Crazy Stupid Love, uh, The Hunger Games one and two. Looks like she was in the first Kingsman as well. Um, so very, very prolific, notable, and um, applauded career by all by yeah. all accounts. There. Um, well, so when when I watched this the first time through LimeWire, um, I didn't <laughs> didn't didn't realize who she was. Obviously, Nick Cage was the big center, but watching it yesterday, realizing who it was. Um, again, I I want to compare it slightly to Jodie Foster, who have had. Uh, police roles in films uh, who've yeah, done remarkably well. Um, and now, obviously, aged 61 and still got a, a big film uh, contract offer. Um, I just feel that um, whether whether it comes with age or whether it... Um, I, do, I don't know, but it just seems whatever film I've seen her in, especially recently, it always seems to do well. I enjoy it or it does... Maybe it's in a chart, uh, very short, sought after, probably Hollywood offerings. Or... Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's, there's, I guess, similar parallels you can make. I mean, Nicolas Cage is now 57 at the time of recording. Um, I think when you have sort of noteworthy careers like they've both had in a different but similar perspective, um, and you have, you're a name, you're an A-lister, I guess as you, as the the years go by, you can be more selective with films, really. Um, where Julianne Moore is making, um, I guess, still a number of films that are doing really well at the box office. Uh, on the flip side of that, someone like Cage in this day and age, he's choosing a lot more 
uh, almost art housey kind of independent films. He's doing a lot more horror stuff, notably. Um, we were sort of saying off record as well. Um, he's done Color Out of Space, Mandy, uh, Willy's Wonderland, which comes out in 2021. Um, he's got sort of the being John Malkovich-esque film later in 2021, um, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Um, so I think you can just have a bit more fun, be a bit more selective, um, and just have just have sort of a good time with it as well, um, which is, I think you know when actors are having like a good time on screen, it's, it, it's clear to tell. Um, with this one, I was... I was never sure if Nick Cage was enjoying himself or not. Um, I mean, his own production company, Saturn Films, did pick this up. Uh, Saturn Films, another one I've brought up a number of times. There's just no information about Saturn Films on the internet that you can easily, accessibly find, which makes me think they are a money laundering company. Um, but they had, interestingly, quite a bit of say in the script as well. Um, for a more background context... This film next is based on the Philip K. Dick sci-fi short story, The Golden Man, in 1954. So that story is set in a post-apocalyptic future where there's potentially powerful mutants who exist. Um, they're hunted down by humans out of sort of fear of, you know, they might take over and rule and stuff. And the character of Chris is based on a gold-skinned mutant who's like this feral person He's captured by the government, but his abilities are um, much more expansive than Chris's are in the film. He can see every possible outcome based on a single event, and he has golden skin, which basically gives him the power of sexual magnetism to the opposite sex, and because of that, he can escape. Um, so, I mean, basically, it is Nicolas Cage now, but without golden skin. Um, so the original script was a lot closer to that story, but they changed it obviously to give Nick Cage the leading role they added the love interest of Liz in there they made it that Chris was more of a social outcast than a, a feral golden beast um but they changed basically the undertones of the story so in that one there was a lot of tones of uh racial paranoia really so they they changed that um as I said the humans would be the FBI and their motivation was not to exterminate mutants but to help them combat the war on terror, but Saturn Films, the Cage production company, they rewrote the script quite heavily and uh, made Chris a little bit more arrogant. Um, I think they tried to make Chris in this quite... Um, they tried to keep the outcast thing, which I think explains the hair, maybe, um, <laughs> but tried to give him some believability as well. Um, and he saw, you, you can sort of get it with the film, like, you know... He has that line says like, "Oh, when I was three, the, uh, the this like science group or something took him in and they made him play guess the next flashcard for like thirty six hours." And so we know that in a past life he's been experimented on and people are aware of his abilities. Um, but this sort of comes back to like the FBI motivation, which was really weird for me. It's it, and a lot of the film because um, th there's a good plot there but it just loses track of it as the film goes on. I mean, the terrorists' motivations, never explored, never explained, not important whatsoever. And then the FBI, you know, using... They are now using 
all of their resources, not to try and stop the immediate threat of a bomb that's going to destroy Los Angeles, but to hunt a man who does not want to help, and they're fine with this, um, an ability that only Julianne Moore seems to know that exists. They're fine with derailing their entire investigation to find Nicolas Cage. Um, and it just like it just loses a lot of sense of what it is. Um, and that was something I wanted to ask you about. Obviously, the FBI hunting for Cage, the terrorist B-plot, that just makes no difference whatsoever. What were your sort of thoughts on that? I remember laughing at, like, we first see some terrorists in a, uh, I think it looks like a port, where they pull out some form of, like, box, and then it, it looks like a cylinder in another box. But we're not, it's like, it's almost like, surely these terrorists are the bad guys. They should have longer than 100 seconds on screen time. We know what yeah. they're going to do, but it just seems a bit very quickly done. Like, did they go, well, we've only got 100 minutes for this film. How much can we scale it back on what we need to see? Um, <laughs> which, in director of this film, previous to this, had directed a James Bond film. Um, yes, Lee Tamahori previously directed Die Another Day and the, uh, the Triple X sequel, uh, State of the Union. So I always feel like you've you've in a previous work history of directing a massive franchise, James Bond. Okay, Pierce Brosnan. People have got different opinions, but still, if that's landed on your desk and that's your year done, you've been you've got a massive responsibility. Then you come over to next a few years later, and it just seems like you know you. Do you know what I mean? You you put have you put so much into Dying of the Day, then all the other films are gone. Eh. <laughs> it's it's interesting because the 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 screenplay this was a a three person screenplay. Um, we have Gary Goldman who'd also previously written Big Trouble in Little China and Total Recall. Uh, Jonathan Hensley who had previously written Die Hard with a Vengeance, Jumanji, Armageddon, and we have um, Paul Birnbaum who wrote Halloween Town, Halloween Town 2, Calabar's Revenge, Halloween Town High, Return to Halloween Town. Um, so, the, you know, there's there's a, a good mix there of, like, very... What, films that did very, very well in, like, the 80s and 90s between, like, action and comedy, and that were able to blend that and did... And, and it, there's, there's definite chops there and skill to do this, but um, it... I don't know if it was the influence of Halloween Town, uh, <laughs> too many cooks in the Halloween Town broth, but uh, this is what I mean. Like there were good, good parts of the film for me. I mean, I thought it was good. Um, sort of how they showed uh, the Chris Johnson character Nick Cage using the powers, um, like uh, you know, at the start when he's sort of dodging all these security. Like we said, he's basically like Agent Forty Seven in the Hitman games. He puts on a hat. They can't tell it's him. He's just dodging people left, right, and center. When he meets Liz in the diner, and he goes through like those ten different flashes of how to approach her, because he knows... Well, he doesn't even know that he's supposed to meet her. He's just had a vision of her, and he's like, well, I guess we're meant to be together, knowing nothing about her. But I thought for a, for a minute, like the rest of the film was just going to be him for an hour, just flashing towards her and trying to get the right... It's like a quick time event in a game, like trying to get the right things. Um... 
and then he sees all the outcomes of her sort of abusive ex and he's like all right and figures out he needs to do nothing wait for the abusive ex to like grab her and then he has to take a punch from the abusive ex just so she'll start speaking to him yeah. um and then at the i i thought it was good at the end and again by this point the the film is very very loosely concerned with the terrorist plot um the fbi have sort of caught up to cage um and this is after they've put him in that sort of clockwork orange chair they've got those sci-fi glasses on him they force him to watch tv until he has a vision about the bomb which as far as we know that's not how his power works um the film seems to change the rules of how his powers work um like i don't know if you sort of picked that up on that as well uh yes um yeah it depends on as you say what when, as you referred to, him trying to get from the diner so many times, uh, and then him lose, especially when he has those glasses on and he's forced to watch it. Um, again, I thought he was only meant to be two minutes from his life, not from what was coming, you know, of everybody else's life, his surroundings. Um, his, I think as well, it's loose, or maybe the director have gone, we've given you the premise, place your judgment to what you work it out. Maybe. I mean, I think the only reason it works, obviously at the start he sees the vision of Liv um, and he doesn't know why. But then he explains to her a little later on that the only reason that's ever changed is when it relates to you and I can see the future relating to you. He doesn't know sort of when it's going to happen, but I think he only sees the future because he sees Liv getting blown up in that little explosion. So he knows something's going to happen to her because confusingly... The FBI have known about Chris for a while. The terrorists know about Chris because they know about the FBI going after Chris. Columbo's there for some reason. Um, he's he's a completely unexplained character. Columbo turns up. This is after he's escaped from the, the casino at the start. Um, he's called Irv, I think he is. And he's, again, <laughs> he, he, the film doesn't explain his connection to Nicolas Cage at all. He just he just goes into like a, a garage. Then Columbo's there, and he's like, "You want to play some Paul?" Um, and that there's no there's no reason for Columbo to be there, um, other than to give us our first interaction between um, Chris and well, Cage and Julian Moore, which then he escapes. Um, obviously, the the Columbo cut of war side, I I did like it when they did. Um, it's sort of the big shootout at the end when they're going to like the. Um, uh, like the shipping yard, and when he's saying to them, "Don't shoot yet, shoot now, aim up like by eight inches." When he's sort of um, leading them and guiding them up to death, I thought, "Oh, that's quite cool." You know, that's that's quite an interesting sort of action action sequence there. Um, but then it's like at that point, the film just becomes concerned with like the relationship between Chris and Liz, and then rescuing Liz, um, and then he's. It's like his premonitions evolve because it seems like he can only see one thing at a time. But then he's like, um, they're looking for Liv, and he's like, right, you guys take this deck. I'm going to search the rest of them. And he just stands still, like a thousand cages just appear and search the rest of the ship. And yes. at, that, at that point, I was kind of like, well, it's not really, it's not been like sort of visually described, like that's what he can do. So he's, he's, 
his skills and abilities seem to evolve when the film decides that they need it to mm. um which was a bit confusing and like if if they'd made more of a point i think of just saying like because he's using the abilities in a different way or whatever even if there's like a line of dialogue of him just to explain that his abilities have changed that would have been something um but i, I don't know um it, it just sort of made me sort of like scratch my head when we were supposed to be invested in the pursuit of these terrorists who have no no discernible motivation um and i think that the, their accents seemed to change as well they were speaking in like french and then english um and then they had that makes me think as well obviously you said we get about 100 seconds of of the terrorists yeah. on screen um and then they're in there they're like oh it's like oh like mr cage he's uh, escaped us once again and then there's the british guy who just turns up we never see him again the english guy who's apparently the leader of the terrorists my notes here were terrible actor didn't get his name but he's like the fbi know about him you're going to get him and i was like is this your are you, are you like a first year like a, a drama school or something uh and obviously like i said we've touched like the hundred seconds of of terrorists did did their plot make any sense for you at all it it didn't um it was i feel like it, it almost should have been as if somebody had planted the 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 bomb there the explosion there but we never saw it it'd be much better if something was planted there and we scrapped all these characters and he had to just get to this this destination by a certain time yeah that would have been far better. I mean, there was a, a scene which uh, happens maybe 45 minutes in. Uh, he he and Liv have checked into this motel. And two things happened which made me laugh. One was the the action scene down the cliff edge where everything yes. just dropped. And I was like, yeah. all we need now is the three stooges just to come. It had that, like, everything <laughs> was pulled down, like a chain went onto a wagon, went onto a wall, went onto a tree, and everything just toppled down. And then it went quiet. And then um, Chris is looking up with the policewoman, and you can just hear stones as if there was a delay or, like, the sound man wasn't around. <laughs> and then it, every, then he saves her. Like, it, the log goes over her, he saves her. And then I'm thinking, if this was me, would I save the policewoman? Because within... Half a minute, then he's tied to a chair with glasses on, and then it's just like I don't know. It's just it's very much uh, bizarre. Um, and then I don't know if I think it's before this bit they're in the the motel, which is called Cliffhanger, and industry is on top of a cliff. So no pun intended. Whether that's a proof, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but uh, Liv has been asked to drug him. Yes, uh, through a drink or orange juice, which he gives him. And it's the quickest, most dullest moment I've seen in a film where she gives him the drink and goes, no, no, don't drink it. It, it doesn't leave her hand. And it's like, <laughs> what are you doing? Just like, it would be easy <laughs> there for him to go to get, as a, as a film premise, but she hands it to him. She's falling in love with him. And then he, he, he goes, and then... And then I'm thinking, where did the orange juice come from? Because they're in a motel in the middle of nowhere. I don't think they do room service. Nobody mentions going out for drinks. Um, yeah. It's, 
again, some props are just planted there um, willy-nilly. Um, but again, that, that motel, which we see later on in the film towards the end, um, and I always wonder, is it a real motel? Um, I don't know. Um, did, did you like that action scene down the cliff? Yeah, I mean, this is what I mean. Like when when you get those sort of full on action scenes when it's him using his power and it's kind of like, and then sometimes they do that thing with the fake out where like in the ship, like he just walks along and then he gets sniped in the chest and he's like, and then he's walking around again. So you've seen a vision and you're like, oh, 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 and like it's keeping you on your toes. Um, obviously he's running down the cliff. Um, he's dodging all the things he knows. He does that unnecessary, like, Superman's, uh, like, kneel slam into the ground to let the car flip over him. I was like, you could have just ducked down. Like, you knew it was going to go over you. That was unnecessary flamboyance. Um, but that bit with the whole sort of motel, though, um, I think they go to Flagstaff, Arizona, because Liz teaches children on um, a reserve. Cage does that magic trick, and fair play. I don't know how he did it. He turned a rock into a lizard. Yeah. Um, don't know how he did it. Well, um, I should uh, point out that uh, in the start of this, we, I said we don't see any more magic, but then, of course, I remember that he does do a magic trick, which um, we know he didn't bring nothing with him, just went right, stone, lizard, here we go, sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whatever the boy's name is, Peter, and he sit there, boy, and... <laughs> It's, it's, you can laugh at this film uh, I mean we should point out that this is an action film uh, what we've described it just seems like you turn up to work and we laugh I mean the hair situation we've addressed um, like a failed magician can see into the future um, yeah it's it's a lot of nonsense, isn't it? Um, I mean, I will, I will say, if Nicolas Cage with that hair turned a rock into a lizard in front of my eyes, I would have at least cracked a smile. That boy did not give a shit. He didn't sell at all. Um, but the, obviously, the other magic trick he does, he turns, he turns like a cigarette into a, like a flaming rose or something to impress Liz. Um, and then they raw dog on the couch. I'm like, you've only known each other for less than twenty four hours. Um, but that scene in the motel, though, I think that's where it started to dip a bit. Because uh, that's when the FBI get hold of Liz and, like, oh, he's actually a sociopath. You need to put this pill into his drink and knock him out. Um, and when you get that bit where he, ex- she doesn't do it, as you said, he explains his powers to her by basically predicting what's going to be on TV. For about a solid minute, he predicts, like, five different shows like three at most if we're going to go sort of comedy rule of three like right three i get it you okay i understand but then he keeps doing it um but that bit i kind of zoned out um and then i, I sort of saw that like four minutes had gone by and then i kind of thought oh right i, I, I don't remember the last four minutes so I, I skipped back on the film four minutes realized that i had watched the four minutes and i remembered everything it was just boring and it was just like the love interest bit was just dull and it kind of makes me think, like, if they had stuck more closely to the 1954 book, obviously had to change some things for a modern audience, but it would have maybe been just a more interesting film if it was mutants with powers and the government sort of hunting them and and all of that. Um, I, I, when, when I watched it all, and I think they should have kept the whole premise in uh, Las Vegas strip. 
They would have been yeah. more chaos. They could have been. They could have done more with traffic. They could have done more with. Because let's not let's don't forget at the start of the film, the owner of the casino is watching him on camera, which he looks up, and they can clearly see that he's up to no good. Or he has some some sort of odd thing going on. So you could have had the premise of they could have been after him. The FBI, you know, if if you could could have kept it contained, you could have done far more action-packed scenes in that strip, say cars, casinos, fighting. Uh, and we've seen bits, uh, as I say, at the start of the film where the guy pulls the gun out, but then you can see that he's coming with the gun, he punches him, and he gets arrested. And I feel as they shift shift off, um, it was nice to see Liv sort of like background what she does, but then they could have come back. I feel because they were surrounded like the, as you say, the shipyard type element it was just a bit dull yeah yeah I, I think they obviously because films have to get hollywoodized and you know whenever a film is greenlit to the film we see on the screen obviously hundreds of things will change between then and now because of studios and all of that um and i can understand why they put the romance subplot in there um because they wanted to add some drama and give some reason as to why his powers work in some way. Maybe, question mark, I don't know. A lot of things just don't really get explained. I mean, you know, for some films, it asks the audience to put the pieces together, that's fine. Some other films, it hands you the answers on the plate, that's also fine. But, you know, it still has to be enough there for you to make sense of it by the end. And that being said, you know, we get to the end of the fight on the on the ship... And then he's Matrix dodging bullets like nobody's business. Lizzie's rescued. But then he's um, the FBI like, oh, we need you to look at this screen and tell me what you see. Where's the bomb? And he's like, I made a mistake. And then the bomb explodes. And then he wakes up back at the motel with Liz. Um, he calls the FBI and he's like, look, I'm going to work with you, but keep Liz out of this. Um, so it kind of turns out that half the film we've seen is a sort of premonition of what might happen because he has that voiceover that he said at the start and he says it again at the end it's like every time you look into the future it changes because you looked at it and that means that his the entire basis of his power is bullshit it doesn't work and it's a cop-out ending as they go off just to drive and find the terrorists and the bomb again and that's where the film ends like the whole film just cops out at the end and i was so annoyed by the ending and um, as I touched on much earlier, I'd love to get your thoughts on your ending as well. How uh, you thought the, of it? The ending, you you you've said it already. Uh, rule of three. I mean, how far? It ends literally on a cliff. The motel is called Cliffhanger, and then they drive off to think, "Is this a Cliffhanger film?" You know, you they ram Cliffhanger <laughs> down your mouth so hard. I look to think, is he doing next two, or or is he signed up to do a Cliffhanger two? This time is personal. It, it's, <laughs> it's so like obvious when you look at it. It's so like cheesy. It's so like B movie level. Um, I, I, I went, went like it, it really got me up until they arrived at that big action uh, scene, and then it got worse and worse and worse. Um, but the ending. If it what if they do have another one, obviously me and you will watch it. Um, but I have no choice. I, I I feel like again 
how how they wrapped it up. Um, should he have died? Should he have just like should it have come full circle where he's back on stage and then live as his new magician's assistant? They can see maybe another plot twist happening. Um, does he start working for the police semi professionally to help them? Uh, this and that's the cliffhanger sort of like questions you could ask yourself. Um, so yeah, yeah, again, disappointing ending. Good start, disappointing ending. It was like it's like one of my 10k runs, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Strong start, weak finish. Um, no, I I do I do agree though. I think the ending left a lot to be desired. It kind of makes me think though that the whole premise of this film would have worked a lot better if it was like one of those um I guess quirky American cop dramas where it's like the um you know the by the book detective and kind of like the um the the sidekick character kind of thing um. Uh, something like Lucifer, which I'm actually watching at the moment, where it's like, you know, the by-the-book detective and the, the cop psychic is the devil, but he's got that ability. He can make people reveal their desires. In this case, it would have been Julianne Moore, but Cage is the sidekick, and he can see a few minutes into the future. As a TV series, I think there's a selling point there, and I think that could have worked. But as a film that wants to say that like, all the actual last half of the film didn't actually happen it might have happened and now that Nicolas Cage has seen it happen it's not going to happen because he's already seen it so the last 50% of this film does not matter at all um and that's I, hey that's maybe why it was considered a box office bomb as well um had budget 78.1 million uh only took worldwide 76.1 um so 78.1 76.1 big old loss not great um and i think i think it shows i mean again like we're saying at the start i think i think 28 percent on rotten tomatoes may be a little harsh there's a good idea there but um when you've got the writer of no less than four halloween town films on your on your movie um <laughs> it's gonna show um so, so i suppose as we as we sort of look to round things up here what would what would be your sort of closing thoughts on next um imagine if the, uh he wakes up the next day and a reference point to halloween town is october 31st and the writer just pops up in the background going ah! <laughs> <laughs> and I'll round it up um i my i well i admit it, it does finish disappointingly um yeah as i say it could have left room for another one but it's been uh 14 years later we are now 2021 um if i if i had probably made i'd have probably made it for a circle he's back on stage looking for another terrorist or bad guy plot um but do we know how long it took for them to film this film out did shooting wrap up within 30 days was it a long production uh, not too sure on the production. I know it was scheduled for a September 2006 release with Sony, but for whatever reason, they actually dropped it, and then Paramount picked it up and released it in April of 2007 on the 27th. Um, debuted at number three at the box office, sort of stuck around that area for a while uh, before Spider-Man 3 rocked up and sort of knocked everyone uh, into order. So, um, and, and, and yeah. of course... Um, I think at the time, 
in in the UK box office, which was kicking off, was Hot Fuzz. So Hot Fuzz was probably dominating our screens here. Um, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost's second uh, film after Shaun of the Dead. Um, so that was probably our top blockbuster over here at the time. So did it come out at the right time? Um, I don't know. Would, would it have, should it have been come out in 20, uh, 2006? Um, but as I say, Maybe. Nick Cage probably drops 11 films a year. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, at, at the time, Disturbia with Shia LaBeouf was still at number one. Blades of Glory uh, with Phil, um, Phil, Will Ferrell and John Hedder, Napoleon Dynamite, was sort of still in the, knocked around the top five as well. So between Blades of Glory and Disturbia, Next had some tough competition. Um, uh, like we say, that it's he, he, other maybe more successful films that came out in 2007 for him, like before this, he had the first Ghost Rider, after this, National Treasure 2. Um, so on the whole, not a terrible year for Nicolas Cage by by any means. Um, I suppose if you can make any money after in post The Wicker Man, then you're not doing too bad. <laughs> no, no. Um, I feel overall this film is a watch for any Nicolas Cage fan. I feel this is a film that when me and Daryl become 45, this will get on ITV4 without a shadow of a doubt. After oh, yes. a lengthy weekend of Dart or Jaws. Um, uh, but there again, it, it is a rare film. I was surprised this wasn't already on Amazon Prime or, Net, or Netflix. Um I think Sky were offering like a buy and keep now for five ninety nine, which I feel is quite hefty for what it is. Um, uh, we, you know, I remember you working at HMB. Do you, do you remember picking her up and putting it on like a three for five pound mark? <laughs> oh man, that would have been twenty twelve. It would have been second year. I, I worked Christmas tempt at HMV. Um, Still a sour point, actually, because they put me, as opposed to all the other temps, I was the only one that got put on the top floor in the Southampton HMV, which was um, the film section. And I, eventually I knew what I was doing. I knew where all the, the genres were. I knew where everything was. Um, I was on the tills. I was upselling Rod Stewart CDs left, right, and centre. Um, and I did not get kept on. They didn't keep me on. Uh, was livid about it then, still livid about it now. But at that, but between now and then, they have gone dipped into administration once or twice. So who's laughing, HMV? It's your boy, Double, Day uh, Double D Dangerous Dynamite, Daryl Edge. Um, so, you know, if there's any way to and uh, wrap up, it's, you know, long live Blockbuster, <laughs> down with HMV, I think is the message of this one. Uh, and also Netflix... Yeah, you can watch next on there as well. Um, more like next flicks. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. Uh, for the listeners, I know it's audio, but Mike is smiling at that gag, and I want to point that out there. Um, <laughs> but as as we look to wrap up this episode, um, as we wrap up with all the other episodes, Mike Reed, if we want to find you on the social medias, how, where, when can we do such a thing? You can do it whenever you want. Um, <laughs> whenever you want. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not massively into social media because obviously most people's lives have slowed down. Um, there was a point where I was uploading maybe one picture a month. Um, I remember uploading some sort of brownie 
uh, <laughs> nice in September. Um, but, but because I, we, we were talking uh, before the recording of this film poster that I had for Christmas, every month now I am sort of putting the poster up and just seeing what films I've watched. You can look, but Instagram is MikeReed18. Um, I mean, if you want to have a look, I mean, I'm not... <laughs> Um, I think my Twitter handle is Mike underscore Reed underscore Welsh. Um, then, if you want to look, I think something I put when it was snowing two years ago I said it's cold. Um, I'm not on TikTok. I'm not massively fan of that. Um, I just find this like, oh, look at my dog. He's eating a pillow. And there's just some sort of like a theme tune from Jurassic Park in the background. <laughs> and that um, would be a successful TikTok. Uh, I think it's important to note, though, Reed, spelled R-E-E-D, not R-E-I-D for listeners. Um, this is not the English comedian who died in 2007 and also played Frank Butcher on EastEnders. I think it's a very important distinction to make that Mike Reed, this Mike Reed, has never been on EastEnders, as far as I'm aware. No, I, I haven't. Um, and as we said, uh, somebody we, we studied with ended up having three seconds of EastEnders. So EastEnders have been the start and end of this podcast. Um, I would like to be on EastEnders. Um, obviously, I can't drop this accent. Um, I feel like maybe I could de- I could deliver something to like Mick Carter in a Welsh accent, you know, like, like a bag of soup. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, if you wanna, uh, I I am on Daryl's friend list on Facebook uh, again. <laughs> I, I would just prefer if you if you're listening and you've got a podcast, me come on there and we could talk about I don't know a podcast. You know, I mean, I'd be I'd like to do a running one if if people are listening. Um, I'd like to do ones on different films. Um, if you've got one on Jake Gyllenhaal, he's my favorite male actor. If you're looking at his films, um, if you like Carbonara, I like that. Uh, <laughs> So if you've got a podcast out there that's about running Jake Gyllenhaal, Carbonara, or a mixture of all three, Mike Reed will do your podcast. Um, and links to his um, accessible social medias will be in the episode description below. But on that note, and there's what, what quite possibly the, the greatest pitch for future work I've ever heard <laughs> in my life, uh, this episode comes to a close. So I thank Mike Reed again for joining me to talk all things next. Um, we will see you next week. But until then, keep on, keep on caging. It's all you have to do. Take care, thanks, and goodbye. Goodbye.